Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio. All right. Thank you, Stefan, for coming in. Uh, my name is Sam Yunin. I'm your host of uh, My Summer Lair. You're on tour with the Happy Film. Hi, Sam. Well, uh, very, well, I mean, it sounds, God, well, it's going to sound bad, but actually very happy to be here in Toronto and very happy to be on tour. I was originally not so much looking forward to it because there's just so many planes to take every single day a new city. But it's actually been pleasurable. For one thing, the planes are haven't been late. I was not forcefully removed oh, from yeah. any of them. See, and so that's you're doing good there. Exactly. Yeah, and, uh, that's pretty good for your track record too. You're a bit of a troublemaker. Well, just a little bit. But yeah. uh, uh, and uh, all the shows, all the screenings have been sold out, with audiences just really being engaged. I mean, we sometimes had. An hour and a half, two hours Q&As afterwards. People literally did not want to go home after the film. And it's been, I've had really good discussions, which is often very difficult. Like, you know, if you have many hundred people around, things tend to stay on the surface. Mm -hmm. But we've actually had some really open discussions. Like, no, I loved it. So the happy film is making people happy. Well, I have to admit, we are actually starting the film with a line that says, this film will not make you happy. Yeah. Is that for the audience or is that for you? Because the project is about you too. The the project is very much about me. But of course, one of the reasons that we made it is so we would make a piece of work that would be relatable, where people can see themselves. And the warning towards the audience is, you know, partly flippant, but there is a good part that's actually serious. Because, of course, I do think that watching somebody, in this case, me going through that struggle of making themselves happier, just watching that on a movie screen will not make you happier. Yeah. It just won't. Uh, In the same way that most self-improvement books don't really seem to work. And I don't think it's because they necessarily tell you terrible things. It's because the engagement is too flimsical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's too, it's too, fl- it's too flimsy. It's too, it's not, it's not engaged enough. But I, what I do see is that if you, uh, that the film is for a good number of people, and I have this in writing because people actually write me long letters afterwards. That's not, that's uh, cool. That they literally, that they sort of like see it as a first step to probably be more engaged in something or avoids the kind of avenues that I went down that clearly didn't work or worked only a little bit. But that's the thing with uh, like self-examination, trying to figure out like what you, what your journey was of trying to figure out what makes you happier and what makes you happier. It's like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of trial and error. And it's not something you just arrive at something kind of simple. Like I like pizza, so I'm just going to eat pizza all the time. Yes, sadly, p- eating pizza all the time is not going to make me happy. Yeah. That should probably it's, be like a DVD extra or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, uh, you know, for for us in the in the film team, it's been a seven year journey with kind of ironically many seriously unhappy periods. In the making of the film. Yeah, your mom passed away. Uh, One of your directors passed away. I mean, we pretty much had any catastrophe that you could possibly have 
in filmmaking and in the personal life happening. And this was uncanny because when I started the film or when I first had the idea for the film, I was not unhappy. It was not sort of like a self-examination, midlife crisis, or, <laughs> or I better do a project to make myself happier. I was actually in, a, in very good shape. And as soon as I made the decision, let's make a film about this, things started to go wrong. <laughs> that sometimes works out for film, though. Sometimes the ones that have the most adversity... They kind of come out a little bit stronger on the opposite end. It's a weird maxim for films. I don't we, understand it. We totally found it. It's even true on a very specific level. Let's say, like, you know, we had a lot of footage. And then in the edit room, almost anything that was overtly positive was totally boring. And I mean, we saw it ourselves. Like, yeah. literally, that I'll give you an example. Like, we spent some serious expense for the whole film team to go to Austria to interview all my brothers and sisters. And I specifically didn't want to be part of those interviews because I wanted them to speak freely. I didn't want to have to have the pressure or they have to only say good things. Well, it turned out they only did say good things, which I was privately pleased about, but it was completely unusable for the film because it just was this boring yeah uh, you, if they would have said like what an unbelievable asshole i was as a young kid and how i cut them with a knife that would have been interesting <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that would be another good dvd extra too exactly yeah there's something to yeah i think there's something what you're saying is just because even sometimes with uh some social media and stuff like that you find that people that are overly positive all the time just either don't get it or naive or like, it's just too it's just boring. It's just sterile, I guess. That's the better word I'm looking for. I think there is a, a, a in psychology, it's called the negativity bias. And it really, there's a fairly good explanation for it. We have a, a small little part of the brain called the amygdala. That's basically a shortcut for negative feelings. And it really was developed by evolution for times when we lived actually dangerous lives, you know, our prehistoric ancestors. Uh, had basically, if you if they didn't see the tiger, they You're were in just dead. Yeah. While if they didn't see the banana, it was fine. You saw another banana a little yeah. bit later. So positive feelings never got that kind of shortcut, but negative feelings do get that sort of shortcut. And I can see it. I mean, you mentioned social media before. I can look at a a blog post about work that we did, and there might be a hundred positive comments correct but i'm gonna zoom in on the two negative ones and yeah. i'm gonna like i'm gonna really sort of like those two are gonna stick in my mind and actually maybe for you viewers it might be interesting because there's a guy really sort of like the the father of positive psychology his name is marty seligman and he developed a, a little technique that uh basically is extremely non-time consuming where he says at the end of the day, put a little booklet next on your bedside table and just write three things down that work. And it can be big things or small things, but just three things that worked that day. And uh, this is, you know, takes under a minute. Right. But it actually fights successfully exactly that. That's the stuff that comes our, to our mind when we fall asleep are the stuff that didn't work because that comes automatically. But they're 
much likely were also things that did work, but they sort of like tend to be in the background. And he has very good scientific ev uh, evidence that this works, how it works, and, and that it works. That makes sense, yeah. Because, I mean, part of it too is like just, it's gratitude. This is simplifying it, but when we get unhappy or we're sad about things or whatever, there's a lack of gratitude as well. It's, you know, I mean, it's that thing, first world problems and things like that. Like, there's a lot that we can be grateful for. Uh, that's a... In, that's also in psychology a very big thing and actually uh, strange that you mentioned it one area where I used to be extremely bad and I think I got a little bit better at it gratitude or, or gratitude yes like uh, and it, it's a funny thing because my mom it was like a saying of my mom oh there's so much that we should be that we can be thankful for mm -hmm. and it's sort of like she said it so often it became this line that you know went in and out of my ears i just got used to mom saying that. yeah um until i sort of rediscovered what a big deal it is in positive psychology that the yeah just this idea that you look around and sort of like see what the good things are that are around. Yeah. I think there's a there is one that is different but combines nicely with it, which is low expectations. Yeah. Like if you look at uh, uh, sort of like research uh, about uh, countries and their happiness, Denmark is always number one or number two. Canada is actually doing extremely well as well, but. Uh, and I could never really figure out because I've been to Copenhagen and I've been to sort of like northern European countries and I could never figure out what the difference would be really between the Danes and let's say the Dutch or the Swedes. Right. And when I um uh when I talked to Danes about it, they said, Well, I think our difference to those neighboring countries is really that we kind of we kind of count on most things not working. And are incredibly surprised when one thing and then grateful for, for the things when they actually do work. But our expectations are lower than that. And I think that that's a very healthy, a very healthy attitude to have. That's kind of counter. This is simplifying it, but it, it's kind of counter to a lot of the American uh, mentality where they kind of shoot for the moon and they expect big things and they want to do big things. And then they get frustrated when there's not that momentum, that there's not that growth, there's not that. You know what I'm saying? Because you live in New York City and you've been there for quite some time, so you kind of yes. know the uh, that whole American dream and just like taking on the challenge. But I think that uh, you can still you can still put a big goal into your life, but then go for the journey and make it not that much about the end product. Yeah, because yeah. if everything yeah. is like hanging on the end product. Yeah. Like if your whole goal is to like write a novel and you do it for like a whole year and at the end of that year you have a crap novel and it doesn't sell and nobody reads it, then it's like... I mean, if you wrote a novel in a year, you're doing pretty well already. But you that's could, what goes exactly. back to gratitude, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. just the recognition, right? Yeah. That you, things we overlook. But kind of connected to uh, gratitude is the vulnerability. Because in the film, too, you're very vulnerable. There's a lot of, like, awkward moments. No, I guess awkward moments for the viewer. Well, yeah, awkward. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if that's fair, yeah. Yeah. Because you kind of put yourself out there. 
and to have the courage to be vulnerable. Um, you find there's a lot of value to being vulnerable? But I have to say that I didn't really set out to be vulnerable. I set out to be honest. And Is I there a difference? Hmm. Well, I would say that I can be honest if I'm a super strong person. I can be honest about being super strong so that I don't fake it and be sort of like fake vulnerable. But like the goal really was to make an honest film. That really, that was a goal. And there was some self-interest in that too because... I actually had this sort of a eureka moment with with my students that uh, we had a, a guest speaker, but it's just like, you know, my 20 students. And there was a guy coming in called Quentin Crisp, who was this very old at the time he passed away since very old British gay man who I think was one of the first openly gay persons he was uh he was in prison for it there were films made about it sting wrote that song about him i'm an englishman in new york that's and he right was yeah. a very much a, an oscar wilde kind of character he looked a little bit like oscar wilde but he also spoke in quotes i mean he could almost you could take notes and you could quote him all the time and one of the things he said that he used to tell journalists that everybody is interesting and the journalists came back to him and said eh, that's not really true mr chris there are so many boring people out there and he had to think about it. And then he said, well, okay, I'm amending it. Everybody who is honest is interesting. And that sort of hit me like a little lightning bolt. That's an amazing quote. It just, it just, I felt, well, as a designer, of course, we want to make interesting things. So if I'm just making honest design, then uh, that would be interesting. And it influenced me at the time we were working on a book. Uh, but, you know, it came out shortly thereafter called Made Your Luck. And that book is now, I don't know, almost 20 years old, which in the design world is basically <laughs> 200 years old. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's gone. dinosaur bones. Yeah. That, uh, and that book sells still really, really well. Uh, and I think that had, and, you know, and some of the projects in it really do look dated. I mean, they have to look dated. They were made 20 years ago. Uh, but the, I think it's, that the text survives the times. And uh, ever since then, and of course I was extremely aware of it during the film, that, that if we are not completely honest in what we are doing, it won't work at all. It just also, it won't be interesting. And there's a voyeuristic aspect to all of that too, because I think that's also connected to happiness. As much as the audience is kind of like peeping in on your journey for happiness and how you're trying to make yourself happy, we also kind of do that all sometimes either subconsciously or consciously. We're trying to check to other people and like, so you went to this island destination, that makes you happy? I should go there too, right? Like there is kind of a voyeuristic aspect to happiness that was kind of interesting as a sub-theme in the film. I think that uh, you call it voyeuristic. I would say, uh, I would call it relatable. And we also saw that with the with the happy show, like there was a side project that came out of the film that actually was also shown in in Toronto here, mm-hmm. and uh, where 
you know, the show was hilariously successful. It, by now, over half a million people saw it. And I think it was mostly connected to relatability. Because I think there's so many people who would go to who go to a museum and they see contemporary art and they unless they really have a very high degree of involvement in what happened in contemporary art in the last fifty years, a lot of it's opaque. And the the happy show and I think that the film now specifically when I see the reaction of audiences is sort of similar that you can relate to it and in sometimes in a very surprising way I mean I had uh, a woman yesterday who was my guest would be definitely in her 60s maybe late 60s tell me how she related to it you know that she saw herself in there so and in and then of course the 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 regular audience is very young there you know i'm now in my beginning 50s but the i would say if i look out at the you know at the audience yeah. after a screening during the question answer period the it's a you know it's a, often an audience in their 20s and they seem to be able to relate so i think that uh I mean, ultimately, I think that's a center part of why we go to the movies in general. And I have to admit, I always thought that this film doesn't particularly have to be seen in the theater, that you might as well watch it, you know, at home or download it or so, because it's not like, you know, the gigantic, you know, explosion, you know, exactly you need to see every single detail. But I was wrong. Uh, I think that it actually is wonderful to see it in the theater. And when it looks, of course, nice yes. on the big screen. <laughs> but uh, probably more important than that, it's uh, the, the ability to watch something in the comfort with other people. The community. Yes. Yeah. That just does make a difference. And just also the fact it's dark, your cell phone is off, you're not going to go easily just to the loo when you want to, you're not going to, like you know, have another screen running. I recently saw some numbers on on uh, how many screens people normally watch. I think it's 2.8 right now in the US. Wow. So if somebody watches a TV show, they have another, they have almost uh, regularly two other screens up. Like a laptop or a phone or yeah. a... Well, in this case, both. Yeah. Or a tablet and the phone. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. And that's a totally different experience. That's sort of like a jumping from one thing to the other, sort of like a frazzled experience. It's just different. Yeah. That almost feels lonelier, too. It's like you just surround yourself with a lot of like warm glow from all the screens, but it doesn't feel warm at all. I mean, I know that if I'm in a situation where I'm that frazzled, where I do this and this and this and this and this, it's not the kind of situation, it's not the time that I find fulfilling or actually even fun. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I almost would describe it, it's sort of like a non-time. It's time that's filled with something, but it's not filled with anything substantial. It's sort of the equivalent of the, I don't know, of the highway off ramp and the Pizza Hut and yeah, the yeah. and the gas stations, it, 
as a non-space. Yeah. This is sort of like the non-time. It's, it's not particularly draggy, meaning I don't think that it necessarily brings me down, but it definitely, it's, I mean, I could also call it a waste of time. Yeah, it's just, it's very similar to just like fast food, where it's just, you just stop for 30 seconds, you shove something in your mouth, you don't really even taste it or chew it, and then it's like, there you go, shut up, stomach, let's go, I got work to do, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's not a meal at all, it's nothing, it was just like, just there. Exactly, exactly. With the happy film, did it impact or sculpt your sense of humor at all? I don't think that the film sculpted my sense of humor. I mean, I think that, again, from audiences, there is definitely quite some laughter in the film. Especially. Uh, much of it on... Uh, the jumping around as a bunny and... Well, the, the, the jumping around the bunny really is not even in the film. It's literally just in the trailer. Yeah. But the... Uh, I'm not sure. It's... Let's say I'm not good enough of a humorist to put jokes in the film. So the, the funny moments in the film really come out of life. They're not like written jokes. Uh, and, but of course, we did want to make the film also funny. Like uh, I would say that it was a big, it was a big goal of mine that the film should also be of us. Really, I should say that the film should also be entertaining. Like, I had no desire to make a film that's you know just spinach, and maybe it's good for you, but yeah. uh, you're just gonna that you feel like you have to sit through this now. And it's it's also like you know the kind of films. I mean, of course you you make the kind of film that you like yourself. Mm -hmm. So I, if I, you know, take, dedicate an hour and a half either to go to the film or to go to the movies or to, uh, to download something and, uh, and watch it properly, I don't just want to learn something. I also want to have a good time. Did that sense of time, you mentioned like the hour and a half, because with graphic design, which you kind of primarily do, you have a short, quote unquote, a short amount of time to convey an idea. Mm -hmm. Like when you're working with Levi's or mm -hmm. when you're doing an album cover for Jay-Z yeah. or Rolling Stones, you have a short amount of time to convey yes. an idea. Did you feel a little bit more free to have an hour and a half or did you feel the same kind of pressure, I guess, to kind of convey an idea quickly and efficiently too? Because that's the best mm -hmm. graphic design. If you can do it quickly and efficiently. I found it a total pain in the ass. Okay. The... the uh, the, the telling a story through time, I found it unbelievably difficult. I think I got better as, or we got better as we went along, but I found, I think there, is, there's one, there was one huge surprise, which was how dictatorial filmmaking is, because ultimately you have, you t every viewer gets exactly the same story. While let's say when we design a picture book or when we design an exhibition, we can design it in a way that there is one layer that uh, somebody who just leaves through a book gets, and then another layer that somebody who spends half an hour with the book gets, and another layer where somebody really wants to read it from cover to cover and spends a day with the book gets. And, so, uh, and we can design it for that. Same, of course, with an exhibition. 
in in the in the film you're making all these decisions for everybody and i actually was quite uncomfortable with that uh, and i had overestimated i think because i do quite a lot of talks so i know how to well, I, I thought i knew like you know how to tell a coherent story to an audience over an hour and a half and so i thought ah, how difficult can it be if you do it on film right very different very very different yeah it's uh there was a a huge learning curve there uh yeah because the narrative structure for a film would be different than it would be for a talk very yeah and with the talk too you have the immediate interaction with the audience exactly. and that is so important like i uh i mean i learned a lot during the film but there is stuff that you can do in a talk that works completely because you are there and you're physically there that you can never do in a film. In a film, it would be unbelievably boring. Like, nobody wants to watch that. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, uh, it's just, there's just huge differences, as there should be, because they're, you know, it's a different medium. You financed the film through the talks, though, wasn't it? Yes. That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Now, we had, basically, this whole thing kind of stood on three legs. So I did talks about the non-existing film. I got paid for these talks, and the money went directly into the production of the film. Then we started this exhibition that uh, where we could also some of the more difficult or higher production value graphic shots. We also did them for the exhibition. So we found we, we found museums who would pay for that production that we could then also use in the film. And of course, what we tried out stuff, I could try out stuff in the talks and see what the audience reaction is and then make a decision should it also be in the exhibition or also in the film. So it was sort of a neat that the film was the the core. But it was uh it was wonderful to see that none of them would have happened without the other. It, uh, I mean in the film had so many had so many problems that without the constant positive feedback that came from the talks and from the a little bit later on then from the exhibition from the happy show i would have never finished the film like i would have said okay this is just too difficult like you know let's forget about it but then there was another show opening somewhere and people loved it and we wrote letters and some of them changed their lives and i thought well uh maybe we'll give it another shot Nice, I like that. Yeah, that's a lot of work, though, to do to balance all three things. No yeah. wonder you're going on sabbaticals. Yeah, no, it was a lot of work. Yes, uh, but uh, but I would say the talks for me are no work at all. It's very easy. It's uh, I like doing them. You know, I travel to often a new city that uh, I might not be on my list of holidays, but it's fantastic to see anyway. Uh, the show was but was relatively easy to do with some hiccups here and there but was relatively easy to do and uh, uh was very much fun it was really the film that was the difficulty and have now that you've had some time and you're taking this uh film on the road as your definition or has your approach to happiness kind of continued to evolve and to change or have you kind of settled into one kind of approach another list or something like that no continue to evolve and change and i think it's i can now actually say surprisingly and strangely that I actually did get happier and that's meaning maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't get too deep into it because 
I don't wanna be a spoiler. Yeah. But I learned quite a bit. And there is a maybe I can say this. From that point of view also this line at the beginning of the film, this film will not make you happier, is very true because some of the stuff that I even that or that is in the film and that I heard a hundred times while editing the film. I still didn't really get it until six months after the making of the film. It's kind of like what you said about your mom saying the same phrase over and over again yeah. about, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you heard that for years growing up and then one day you're just like crossing the street or something in New York City and then it hits you like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mom was right. Yeah. There is a, I think there is, there's a lot of stuff out there already that's, that sort of sounds banal, but would actually be unbelievably deep if I would get it properly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Like, I actually grew up Catholic and I was an altar boy. So I heard this idea of Jesus offering the other cheek hundreds of times. And it was only in Indonesia, strangely, talked to me by a, explained to me by a Buddhist, that this would actually be, actually be a possibility to design your life around. And he, you know, he had this fantastic example of, because in, uh, in Indonesia, specifically in Bali, you had these big uh, uh, terrorist attacks. And the uh, Bali is pretty much run by village elders or a form of village elders. And they got together after the big attacks. And these were much more, for the personal lives of the people in Bali, they were much more devastating than, let's say, 9-11. Meaning, for one thing, a lot of people died, but also everybody was affected because tourism just died. Right. So, like, everybody was deeply affected. And these village elders got together, like, you know, one from every village, and they said, so, number one, we're not going to retaliate. Number two, we are hiring the uh, we are hiring the police from Australia because ours is corrupt, and we have them come in and get all the uh, get all the uh, get all the uh, the terrorists basically. And then number three is let's think about what we contributed to bring that sort of hatred upon us. Like what can we do? And they are uh, literally. Six months later, they had caught everybody. Most were in prison. I think two were actually two were, uh, were, uh, were executed. And that was it. And I felt like if the U.S. would have had such an enlightened strategy after 9-11, we wouldn't have an Iraq war. We wouldn't have a war in, uh, uh, in Afghanistan. We, uh, uh, the U.S. could have saved literally trillions of dollars. And, of course, I think in the meantime, many more people, even on the U.S. side, I mean, on the, uh, on the Iraqi and Afghani side, mm -hmm. many, many, many more. But even on the U.S. side, more people died in the war than died on 9-11. So it's just from every point of view that you look at it, uh, humanitarianly, but even financially, it would have been just fan fantastic. 
there was a moment where after 9-11 where people didn't really, there was some protests and stuff where people didn't want to go to war. I think they were either sick of war or they felt like what you're saying, which is like, let's not do this. Let's not go down this road. Let's figure yeah. something else out. But of course. I mean, I was, because we did the logo for it. I was at this concert for New York very soon after 9-11, you know, where everybody played and all the firefighters were invited. And I remember there was Hillary at one time on stage and an actor on stage that both sort of like said, they just said very carefully, let's not rush to, let's not rush to conclusions. And they were booed off the stage. Mm -hmm. Like it's, there were definitely people out there who wanted it, but uh, so there were a lot of people also who really wanted to see some blood. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of music now, I'm just switching gears because you do a lot of stuff with music. What kind of music are you digging these days? Hmm. I had actually, I was listening to a lot of Shaky Graves. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the devil takes, uh, the devil makes three. Uh, so, so kind of like country. Punk, bluesy. Yeah. Whatever you would country bluesy. Yeah. yeah. Some sort of like newer influences. Yeah. Uh, very recently. But uh, it's. I think the older I get, the more wide my musical tastes are. When I was very young, it was always like just this or just that, and everybody else was an idiot for listening to something else. <laughs> and yeah, it's now it's much much wider. And in terms of uh, upcoming for this year, is there any kind of cool projects other than the happy film that you're touring? Is there any something cool to look out for? Yes, I'm actually wearing Levi's right now. So All right, you did a good job. So. Yeah. Good. <laughs> But uh, yes, of course, uh, we are doing, uh, meaning, you know, on the more commercial side, you know, we're doing quite some work for Snapchat. Uh, we are uh, working on a, uh, on a good number of brands that are close to our heart. Like we, we only, the commercial side, we only take on things that we would either use ourselves or at least feel it has a right to be there uh, uh, in this world. And then uh, uh, Jessica uh, and I, Jessica Walsh, is my partner in the studio. Uh, we are uh, sort of like gearing up on a very large new project on beauty. When we came to it, sort of like on a strange, into a strain from a strange direction, because we just found that whenever we made something more beautiful, let's say whenever we really spent a lot of time on the form, on the formal expression, it just worked so much better. And in that, I did a lot of uh, research on it and sort of found that almost, not almost, throughout human development, literally from the earliest Stone Age until 1918, beauty played a gigantic role in all of human history. And then kind of through some very particular historic uh, 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 movements, it kind of died out. First with the avant-garde, and then some of their ideas was willfully, were willfully misunderstood by this sort of like economic functionalism that just mm -hmm. wanted to make everything fast, as fast, as cheap, and cheap as possible. And we still suffer from that sort of psychotic sameness that came out of that uh, to this very day. So we want to really create a big 
counter-movement. And I'm actually also very closely talking to a place here in Toronto. So on one hand, it's going to be a bit, an exhibition, but on the, the bigger project is really going to be a, a large organization that takes the ideas of the exhibition and implements them in real life, which would mean basically look at neglected spaces in Toronto and beautify them. And, and, or, <laughs> and by beautify them, I really mean formal intent. Because I actually don't even mind the purposefully ugly. What I mind is the lazy yeah. or the, the, the unconsidered. 99.999% of everything that's ugly in the world is not ugly because somebody said, let's make it ugly. Yeah. That stuff is mostly interesting. It's ugly because somebody said somebody didn't give a shit. That's basically it. Yeah, you need a doorknob here, so we'll just put a doorknob here and then call it a day. But you could have done all kinds of different forms. and Exactly. The same is true for the gas station. The same is true for the, the fast food pizza place. And the same is true for the highway off-ramp and so on and so forth. Yeah. And we just have, I, mean, I mentioned, it, uh, I think the best word I have for it is there's just an incredible amount of non-spaces around now. You know, just unconsidered spaces. Or... And I think that it's through modernism, there's also an incredible amount of sameness, like this idea of repetition, that this would somehow be more efficient is a very bad idea. I mean, literally, even like a, half an hour ago, I forgot, uh, I, I lost my charger. So I had to quickly run out and get a charger. And when I came back to the hotel, it took me like 20 seconds to figure out, even though I was already on the plaza, which of the four buildings is actually the hotel because they yeah. all look the same. Yeah. And they weren't, it was not the same, meaning it wasn't even the same development. But it's like every idiot architect in the world thinks that <laughs> it's like, like right now we can only do bluish glass with a little aluminium line and a little that sort of roof thing on the top. It's just crazy. I mean, and it's... I feel this needs to be stopped. That's and almost a revolution, though, in a way, because there's like, there is like, like I don't know how you want to phrase it, but it's like there is that um, acceptance of mediocrity, yeah. right? If yeah. that's you, if you can use that to kind of sum up what you're saying, yeah. and people are like, well, that's good enough. I think that's what it kind of yeah. boils down to. That's good enough. That's a doorknob. That's the off ramp yeah. uh, thing, yeah. and then that's good enough. I'm gonna go take a nap now. We're done. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that is one. But then there is also a much more institutionalized feeling where, where even some good architecture companies, they would not have, like you can go to their websites and see, they would not have beauty as a goal as part of their practice. And it won't work without it. Meaning that the, the tricky thing is that it's actually difficult to do, specifically contemporary beauty. Because I'm not talking about being should now start to copy the Renaissance or gothic cathedrals or whatever but it's it's actually very difficult to do and all of these people also in my profession like you know everybody talks about all oh, solving clients problems and all that, that you know everybody has the same lines and it's almost a you know confronted when they say oh no no we are not about making beautiful things that's not what we are about well the trouble is is that it's actually difficult and then most of the people who say that's not what we're about, actually couldn't do it when asked. 
and be put the test. I mean, you know, be be a hiring. We are looking for people that are formally sophisticated, and find that is much more difficult to find than somebody who has a good idea. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Like we can, uh, I mean, obviously we want that too, but that's very easy to find. To have a good idea is fine, but to actually be able to keep working on this until it's pleasing to the eye, that the composition is right, that the material is correct, that the, that the proportions are fine, that, uh, you know, that the form and the shape is good, that the color scheme is good, is actually difficult. Uh, and m most schools being still stuck in this whole conceptual world from the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, mostly art school teachers my age, uh, don't teach it. So, and yeah. I think it's all that's all a mistake. And I also felt it myself that I actually feel better in a beautiful environment and that I behave better in a beautiful environment. And uh, we have the case studies to, to prove it, meaning like, you know, where, uh, uh, where, meaning I have one wonderful uh, comparison of the 1970s train station, Penn Station in New mm -hmm. York City versus Grand Central, which is a beautiful 19th century train station. People do behave differently in them. They feel differently in them. I mean, you, it's palatable. Yeah, and you can see them taking the photos when the sun is coming through. And exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. What you're talking about, too, is like freedom can sometimes be intimidating when you have to make all these choices. Like you said, you look at the different colors, the fabrics, all these things. Mm -hmm. When you're a child, like your parents just put out your clothes for you and it's like, this sure. is it. And it's nice and neat. But when you become an adult or teenager or whatever, and then now you have to sit, does this shirt match this? And yeah. like, it's a lot of work. And it's like, it's almost sometimes some people I could see it, like just want to like, just still have somebody lay it out for them. And it's like, then you're done. And then you match and you're good and you're good to go. Well, many choices uh, are a difficult thing. No doubt about it. Yeah. And... I do think that being the best very often make not good formal choices. Meaning, I went with my sister to uh, Rajasthan, and it was amazing. Like, literally, in all of Rajasthan, and they have these fancy hotels there because you have to, you know, uh, all these old palaces were converted into hotels. I would say the only people in Rajasthan that were terribly dressed were the rich tourists. <laughs> All the locals <laughs> from poor to middle class to, yeah. to wealthy yeah. were dressed to the hilt, <laughs> yeah, you know, amazing, like yeah. completely up. And the, the guy with the shitty brown shorts in the terrible <laughs> sandals with the ugly yellow toenails coming out. Yes, that was some CEO yeah. in some suite, yeah. you know. But also in the hotel, of course, it was almost like a joke because, yeah. of course, they have these livered, livered service people like, you know, with yeah. turbans and fantastically dressed. But also outside, like the poorest of the poor, you see like, you know, uh, in the saffron uh, sarong scorches. Yeah. Do you like doing these kind of projects more than like, say, the graphic design work for bigger companies and things like that? Or is it? kind of even out or equal out or is it all the same to you or i think no it's not all the same to me but i uh, i think i like the mix uh we 
we tend to get influenced our the, the, the personal projects or the self-initiated projects tend to get influenced by our commercial projects and vice versa. And you can, meaning you can see it, you know, like you can see how our commercial projects became at formal influences from the, the, the self-initiated ones. And you can see the self-initiated ones, you know, getting influenced by technologies that we could try out in the commercial world. And I, I have to say, it's totally fine with me because, you know, as a private person, as a, just as Stefan, of course I go in the morning, I have a, 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 a talk with a friend, it's personal. I go to the supermarket afterwards, it's commercial, and I might go to see a, a museum show and I'm in, some, in the art world. And everybody that I know does that, is, is, is dealing in all three worlds. So why not do that also in, in the professional world that you're dealing in all three worlds? So I don't think that one excludes the other at all. Uh, this all just seems to be kind of work for you. Yeah, and it's. Uh, uh, I remember there was a time when we did almost for a long time just all work for the art world, and it became unbelievably difficult because, of course, your own or my own standard when. Uh, when it's pure expression is higher than if I'm uh, in the, within the limitations of a client project that you know, also has, of course, a very functional goal. That's what makes it design. You know, I don't know, like, you know, I have this bottle in front of me. Uh, when we design that, one of the functions of a soft drink bottle would have to be that it sells the soft drink and mm -hmm. it hopefully does it better than, than the bottle that they used to have until then. But you can do that, of course, in a, in a delightful or in a non-delightful way. And I mean, I think that we've all had experiences with commercial products that were delightful. Be it on a motorbike that was a commercial product yeah. and had unbelievable fun on it. And we had the opposite. So the quality of design, of that design, plays a gigantic role. It can be good or bad. So going back, just to conclude then, with the happy film, can work make you happy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that work is, is sort of like one of the main areas where I can really try to bring it up to a level where happinesses can arise then by itself from in between. And the same, of course, is true for all my relationships, from the furthest acquaintance to a lover and everybody in between. And the same would be true for something that's bigger than myself, to be involved in something that's not just about me, but that's really bigger than myself. I think for many people that's religion. For me, it's probably more likely something like the beauty project all right well that's a good place to end it there thank you for coming in and like hanging out and talking about design being happy discovering happiness beauty we covered a lot we so. did cover a lot thank you so much Sam. thank you it's a pleasure